Okay, good morning, everybody. It's uh, nice to see the sun outside. Yeah. Some clear blue sky. That's a blessing from the Lord today. Um, I thought it interesting that uh, mention was made of fear, an acceleration of fear in our society that we've seen. And there's a lot of fear even amongst us if we're honest with ourselves. But the Lord brought something to mind to me yesterday that I wrote down a couple years ago in response to the fear that we had seen all around. Most of you may not know this, but it's sundown today begins the Jewish feast of Hanukkah. And it will run from eight days until the 26th. So Hanukkah and Christmas will actually overlap this year. That happens every few years. Uh, sometimes Hanukkah is in the end of November, beginning of December, and sometimes like this year, it overlaps. And so the Jews will begin this eight-day feast tonight at sundown. And I just felt led of the Lord to share something with you this morning that I wrote down back around, around this time in 2020. It was near the beginning of the month of December. So Hanukkah was the first few days of December two years ago. And I think it uh, accords well with what was spoken this morning. And so just indulge me for a moment. I'll try not to read monotone uh, like some preachers have done. But keep in mind, there have been great sermons that have been read monotone. One of the greatest of all time preached on American soil in a place called Enfield, Connecticut was just read monotone by a preacher who had very little charisma, and yet out of that broke out repentance and great revival that we would later know as the first great awakening. I'm speaking of Jonathan Edwards, of course, and sinners in the hands of an angry God. So I'll try to be a little more animated this morning. But this is something I penned a couple years ago, and I think it's appropriate. It's appropriate as we study the last chapter of the Bible. Anyway, I asked my children this morning around the breakfast table if Hanukkah is in the Bible. They said no, as would most Christians. But that is not correct. Hanukkah is in the Bible. Jesus used the observance of that feast, what John calls the feast of the dedication in the winter. That's Hanukkah to preach bold truth in the temple on Solomon's porch. He spoke of his true sheep who would hear his voice and follow him. They would have eternal life and they would not fear men. And no man would be able to pluck them out of his father's hands. We often read these words of John 10 as if they were spoken in a vacuum and we fail to consider the historical context of the events that were being remembered that day during the Feast of Hanukkah that the Jews and Jesus Himself by going up to the temple at that time were observing that winter. The events of the first Hanukkah are also prophesied in great detail in the Bible more than 360 years before they took place. History written in advance. Read Daniel chapter 11. 
This near horizon prophecy is given as a type or foreshadow of a far horizon prophecy and ultimate fulfillment or antitype as will transpire at the time of the end. Exactly what we've been studying in Revelation. In and through the person of Antichrist. Daniel eleven twenty one through 34 prophesies in detail the rise of the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the king of the south, and what is described as a vile person. Friends, vile people in places... I'm, I'm giving you a little commentary here now. I'm not reading anymore. Vile people in places of power and authority are nothing new. They were prophesied. This individual was prophesied as a vile person. So when we think about vile people, like the fake president in Washington, he's a vile man. When we think about vile people, like the thugs who wear a sheriff's badge in Madison County, Montana, vile people, we shouldn't be surprised. Because vile people in power are an old, old story. And it was something that the Jews faced at the time of the first Hanukkah. Something that was prophesied more than 300 years before it came, into power, or came to place. The Bible tells us that when the vilest of men are exalted to places of power, like we see in the White House, like we see in the Capitol, like we see in law enforcement all over this country, then we know that the wicked walk on every side. The wicked walk on every side, Psalm 12 says, when the vilest of men are exalted. So instead of complaining perhaps about vile men, maybe we should focus inward and consider that our society is wicked to the core. And unless God does a work like He did at the time of the first Hanukkah, we won't survive. That's just a little commentary. Verse 35 in Daniel chapter 11 covers the period of the Jewish diaspora that has existed from 168 B.C. until the present day. As indicated by the phrase, even to the time of the end. And beginning with verse 36, the focus shifts to Antichrist. The second most talked about individual in all of Scripture, believe it or not. Of course, the Messiah is the first of whom Antiochus IV Epiphanes was a type. The proof that these last verses are not talking about Antiochus is found in verse 40, because Antichrist is opposed by both the king of the south and the king of the north. Antiochus IV Epiphanes of Daniel 11 was the king of the north. Anyway, these events prophesied years before they transpired were fulfilled exactly like Daniel was told by the angel in the third year of King Cyrus of Persia. And they gave rise to the Feast of Hanukkah. Just as the events of the book of Esther gave rise to the Feast of Purim. During these days of tyranny in Israel, that would foreshadow what is coming for the Jews under Antichrist, there were a few, a few, who refused to believe Antiochus' flatteries and lies, and who saw the coming tyranny for exactly what it was when many of their fellow Jews in the cities went along to get along. 
being told it was for their health and for their safety. Daniel also prophesied, prophesied these few who would not go along. Daniel 11.32 says, Many in Israel would be corrupted by the flatteries, quote, But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, unquote. Faithful women in Jerusalem refused to disobey God concerning the circumcision of their infant children in the face of an executive order that forbade them to do so. Antiochus' officials, including the Jews who went along with them, took the circumcised baby boys and hung them from trees, killing their faithful mothers. These things are recounted in the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees. They, quote, chose rather to die that they might not profane the Holy Covenant. So then they died, and there was great wrath upon Israel, unquote. Let me make it clear, the book of 1 Maccabees is not inspired Holy Scripture. It is a contemporary historical account that confirms exactly what Daniel 11 prophesied 360 plus years earlier. For that reason, it does have value, and it does have worth. It's worth a read, particularly in the days of tyranny in which we live. Not much unlike the early years of Antiochus Epiphanes' flatteries that secured his power. The King James translators made it very clear that the apocryphal writings were not Holy Scripture and they did not intermingle them with the Old Testament like the Catholics had done. Instead, they were stuck between the Testaments in the original 1611 edition of the King James Bible, much like we put maps at the end of modern day editions for historical insight. The King James translators, men of equality and character, that would put to shame 99% of today's American pastors and seminary professors, stuck them there to give the reader an idea of the kinds of things that were happening in Israel during the 400 years of silence between Malachi and the angel that appeared to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. And they declared in their preface, the, the King James translators, why these were not to be considered Holy Scripture, and they gave very clear reasons, not the least of which are the glaring theological contradictions. A lot of false Catholic teaching, doctrine, prayers for the dead, last rites, all these kind of things come out of the apocryphal writings. Yet the historical accounts contained therein do prove the Scripture to be true and that the Scriptures can be trusted, even in the minutest of details. God always does exactly what He says He is going to do. I would say 1 Maccabees is a historical account that affirms detailed biblical prophecy, just as do accounts, historical accounts, of the history of the modern state of Israel. Second Maccabees, on the other hand, is more mystical and fanciful, exaggerating historical events for religious purposes, just like the Catholics used to do with their relics 
and concerning the rise of the papacy. Anyway, 1 Maccabees is worth a read because it is mostly a historical account that proves God's words in Daniel 11. Moreover, it explains why the Jews were celebrating Hanukkah in Jesus' day and why our Lord specifically chose that day to preach on Solomon's porch in the temple. Hanukkah exists today because one priest who lived in the countryside that would have been flyover Israel in a red district in Israel of old and his five sons were so vexed by the blasphemies and tyrannies that had been committed in Jerusalem under Governor Roy Cooper, Joe Biden, I'm I'm sorry, Antiochus IV Epiphany. (laughs) Keep in mind, I wrote this two years ago. Roy Cooper's a non-entity today. I don't know what happened to him. He issued a lot of executive orders that we defied and refused to comply with two years ago, but now you don't ever see him anymore. It's funny. It's funny. They saw and considered the sacrifices that some of the women of Jerusalem were willing to make, circumcising their children in obedience to God, even if it meant their own death and the death of their baby boys. And they said, enough. We will not comply. We will defy tyranny and we will fight it. And like Daniel 11.32 said would happen, those who do know their God did exploits or exploits. Thus arose the Maccabees who stood in the gap between a very powerful tyranny and the people who were its victims. Antiochus was eventually forced out of Israel where he met an untimely end much like Herod in Acts chapter 11. The temple was cleaned up and rededicated to the Lord. And the menorah, or the candlestick, that typically had seven candles in honor of the seven days of creation, was relit according to God's command in Exodus 27.20. But they only had enough of a supply of pure olive oil to last one day. It miraculously lasted eight days providing enough time to build up a supply of, quote, pure oil beaten so that the light would continue to burn always. And so with enough oil for a day, pure olive oil, the candle, the menorah stayed lit for eight days, and that's why a Hanukkah menorah doesn't have seven branches, it has eight. Typically the menorah has seven branches for the seven days of creation and the seven spirits of God, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But the Hanukkah menorah has eight because the oil lasted eight days. Many years later, Jesus the Messiah came into the temple in Jerusalem just as the prophet Haggai said he would do. On Hanukkah, where that light was still burning, and he spoke of those who truly knew God. His sheep would know him and do his will. They would not fear And no man could pluck them out of his father's hands. In other words, like the faithful in Israel many years before who knew their God. And therefore, not even Antiochus could pluck them out of God's hands. As opposed to the corrupted Jews who fell for the lies, cowered before the vile king and betrayed their own people. So would be our Lord's disciples 
They will know and be known of God. They will not fear men nor cower before them. They hear Jesus' voice and know His will. What power these words of the Messiah in John 10 should have for us living in these days. So should be us. Like the Maccabees of old, let us obey God rather than men. And let us interpose in the face of tyranny and violence and anger and threatening. If we will not cower, if we will refuse to comply with fables and oppositions of science falsely so called, if we will stand in the gap and resist unjust rule and lawlessness, whether it's at the top in Washington or way down at the bottom with a good old boy sheriff's club in a rural county in Montana, it may be, if we will resist unjust rule and lawlessness, it may be that a band of a few, just as in 168 B.C., and, by the way, in 1776 in the American colonies, will do exploits and instruct many. That, my friends, is the lesson of Hanukkah. And I wrote back then for us in 2020. How much more so today in 2022? And yes, Hanukkah is in the Bible. Maybe therefore, I wrote this two years ago, maybe therefore you should just take off that mask here in North Carolina and go plan to do something righteous tonight that keeps you out past the governor's 10 p.m. curfew. We did. We purposely, some of us, purposely went out to preach on the street corner here in North Carolina after our governor thought he could tell us we had a 10 p.m. curfew. That was very Maccabean. And I stand by it to this day. Wherefore, 1 Maccabees 1, 63-64, Wherefore they chose rather to die that they not, might not be defiled with meats. Exact same thing Daniel and the three Hebrew children refused to do in Daniel chapter 1. They didn't have to pay for it with their lives though. These people did. And that they may not, might not profane the holy covenant, so then they died. Well, testimony. More importantly, the writer of Hebrews says these words. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also, and of Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight. That is a reference to the Maccabees. The writer of Hebrews is referring to the Maccabees. Waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight, the armies of the aliens, the Maccabees, they turned to flight. The armies of Antiochus Epiphanes. The writer of Hebrews, I believe was Paul the Apostle, was addressing a Jewish audience. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Like those ladies in Jerusalem who refused to stop circumcising their male children that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, 
tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Hebrews chapter 11. So, Hanukkah, the lesson, it was in the Bible and has a lesson for us. Even in the face of overwhelming odds and numbers, we should obey God. We should not fear and we should stand in the gap. And even be willing to die for the things we preach. I'm supposed to be preaching from Revelation. Let's try to do that. That's an introduction there. We're in the last chapter of the Bible. Last week we started or resumed in verse 6, which introduces the first of the last of several things we see in the Bible. Revelation 22, 6 through 15 is the last exhortation found in the Scriptures. We'll go on and we'll see that there is also a last invitation, a very last warning, a last promise, a last prayer, a last blessing, and a last amen. The very last of each of these things in the Bible. So they're worth looking at, worth considering, and if we're going to look at the last of each of these, we also ought to consider the first. Remember last week I talked about a very important hermeneutic principle in studying the Scriptures, the law of the first mention. The first time a word or a concept or an exhortation or a teaching is mentioned in the Bible, it'll set the tone and the connotation or the atmosphere, per se, of subsequent mentions. We looked at different words like love, wicked, sinner, believe. And the first time these words are mentioned in the Bible, they set a tone. The first time we see the word love, it is inextricably tied to sacrifice. True biblical love is sacrificial. It's not self-serving. We looked at the first exhortation in the Bible. If we're going to look at the last exhortation, let's look at the first and see what it has to teach us as we try to understand the last. That can be found in Genesis 1, 27-30. The very first exhortation God gives to man. Remember, exhortation is the act of inciting to good. It's the opposite of inciting to evil. Inciting to good. A form of words intended to incite and encourage. Not to incite and discourage. An exhortation. It's different than a warning. It's like a positive warning. The first exhortation in the Bible, God told the very first, our very first father and mother to be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, and to exercise dominion over his creation. Man was made a little lower than the angels, according to the psalmist. And he was commanded of God, exhorted to exercise dominion, to be fruitful and multiply. The first exhortation in the Bible is all about what the evil one and what our society today hates the most. And that's the family. 
If you go back over a hundred years, please understand, and there were preachers warning us and no one listened. It was never about a woman's right to vote. It was never about education for your children. It was never about women having opportunities to work in the workplace and have a career. It's never been about a woman's choice. It's never been about freedom for homosexuals and perverts. It's not about any of those things. The evil powers and principalities and the wicked men in power don't care about any of these individuals they claim to represent. It's always been about the destruction of the family. Just like it was in the Garden of Eden. And so we need to consider that the first exhortation of the Scriptures is all about the family. So what does that have to teach us about the last exhortation of the Scriptures? What about that tone comes into play here? Well, I would say that the best way we do and keep what is written here in verse 6 is we teach it to our families. We actually do what God told Israel to do and they failed to do beyond the generation of Joshua and the elders. They failed to teach these things to their children. Raise up a family, do exactly what God told Adam and Eve to do here in Genesis 1. Teach them the Word of God. And that, my friends, is the sweetest, the most precious vengeance upon evil today. So let that first exhortation sink in as we look at this last exhortation. So in verse 6, we covered last week. It's kind of an introduction to the final exhortation of the Bible, which begins in verse 7. And he said unto me, this is the angel, and we're going to learn about that angel's identity here shortly. These sayings, everything that's been said to you, John, remember we're back on the Isle of Patmos now. We hadn't been there in 10 years in this exegetical study. But we're back there. This is the epilogue of the book. John's seen all of these things, much of the same things that were shown to Daniel. And John is back on the Isle of Patmos. And this angel says to him, these sayings, everything up to this point that you've seen and heard, are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the thing which must shortly be done. This verse here ties everything back to the first verse of this book. John is told the same thing in the first verse of the first chapter of this book. He is told this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, that is the churches, the things that must shortly be done. What we learn here in verse 6 is that the God who gave these things to John to show unto the churches is the God of the holy prophets. And so not only does this verse tie everything that's been said back to chapter 1 verse 1, it ties everything that's been said to this entire book. The God of the holy prophets, the same God who gave us Genesis the books of Moses, the first prophetical writings, all the way down to Malachi. That's the same God who gave these sayings to John. And they are faithful and true. They are faithful and true. 
And we are, they, we, John was instructed to show unto the churches, and we're going to see that word, the churches, later in this chapter, things which must shortly be done. The word shortly doesn't necessarily mean soon. It means that when it happens, it'll happen as God is accustomed to acting in judgment and in salvation. It will happen suddenly. And it won't be drawn out over a long period of time. It'll happen suddenly and quickly. Kind of like the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Kind of like what we're seeing right now with the demise of our country. And then beginning with verse 7. We have a last exhortation. This will go down through verse 15. I'll just read it. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. My friends, that's the last exhortation of the Holy Scriptures. What we see here is in this exhortation is two very specific blessings. In verse 7, we actually have chapter 1, verse 3 restated. There is a special blessing promised to those that keep the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Revelation is one of those books in the Bible that promises a special blessing to those that read it and who keep it and understand it. And yet, it is the most neglected book in the churches of all the Bible, and it has been for a long time. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 3, it's very clear. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. If those that hear the words of this book are blessed, then why do the shepherds of the churches refuse to preach it to their flocks? Because they're dumb dogs, like Isaiah the prophet said. Because they're self-serving. Because they're cowards and sense, and they fear for themselves and not for their flocks. <laughs> Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. There's a lot of things written therein, guys, for the churches 
Two whole chapters. And we don't ever hear about them. And we definitely don't keep them. And we're missing a blessing. So this book promises a blessing to those who keep it and who guard it. And that's what we've tried to do here this last 10 years as we've studied it intermittently. 21 verse 7 specifically restates the blessing of chapter 1 verse 3. Then we have another blessing down in verse 14. Blessed are they that do His commandments. It's a blessing to do God's commandments. Now if you have a modern Bible, you might find that verse to say something very different. Something that makes absolutely no sense and runs completely contrary to everything that's been said in this book about robes and the righteousness of the saints. You might have a Bible that says, Blessed are they that wash their robes. Oh no. We can't wash our robes. We have to have those robes given to us just like Joshua the priest and Zechariah the prophet stood there dirty and filthy and he was given white raiment. The sin that stains our robes is like oil on a white sheet. You can wash it, you can scrub it, you can bleach it, but it's never coming out. We need new robes. We can't wash our robes. And if we have what Christ gives us, we don't need to wash them. But blessed are they that do, the, do His commandments. I'll talk about that in a little more detail. Two blessings in this last exhortation. There's also two commands. Very simple and pointed commands. In verse 9, two words. Worship God. John does something hastily and foolishly and he's immediately rebuked for it. He's immediately rebuked. Don't worship me. I'm one, of, I'm one of your fellow servants. I'm a fellow servant of the prophet. Worship God. And we think, well, that's just kind of an elementary, what's the big deal about? Of course, worship God. Well, no. The spirit of Antichrist is the opposite of that. It always has been. Worship men. And many out here who would tell you they worship God or you should worship God actually worship a man-made God they've constructed in their own mind to fulfill their own or to satisfy their own lust and pleasures. The spirit of Antichrist is worship of man. And so when this angel tells John, worship God, he's throwing a rock into the hornet's nest of the spirit of Antichrist. He's stamping it out. Guys, we need to worship God. That's the lesson here of this last exhortation. Something that our first father and mother, the recipients of the Bible's first exhortation, failed to do. They were given a simple commandment and they failed to do it. Here at the end of the book, we're given a simple commandment. Will we fail to do it? We don't worship God by cowering in fear before the world. We don't worship God by doing nothing and just standing there. I was given a choice a few weeks ago to do something or to do nothing when a rabid, vile maniac who hates Jesus Christ in the cross, he had no other reason to stop on that highway and confront us, threatened my life, reached for something in his vehicle and then got out and charged around the front with my 12-year-old boy standing there. I had a choice to do something or to do nothing. It was Teddy Roosevelt who said that in, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The, work, the, the second best thing you can do is the, is the wrong thing. 
But the absolute worst thing you can do is nothing. I did what was right. I did it with great mercy because I love Jesus. And you want to give a wicked sinner the benefit of the doubt? And I'll never apologize for it. Because if I were to do so, then I would fail to keep this commandment, which is to worship God. To worship God is to believe His truth. And the truth of God says that people in the day of adversity who faint have a small strength. And the Word of God says that when we see innocent people facing a threat, if we stand there and do nothing, Proverbs 24, then we are guilty and the one who keeps us safe will remember that. So when we worship God, we do what He says and we make no apology for it. And like the Jews in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, we would rather die than plead guilty to a lie. No pleas, no deals to the bitter end. Right, Eric? To the end, right, brother? They want to fight, they're going to get it. To the end. A Christian who worships God makes no apology for doing right. Especially when right is clothed and covered in mercy. That old wicked devil who tried to mess with some preachers minding their own business on the side of the highway, he ought to be thankful to God that we love Jesus. And we actually believe what's written on that cross. Because if we didn't, or if it had been somebody else, he'd probably be dead. But we love Jesus and we love our fellow men. We'll stand against evil, but we'll preach the gospel and we'll give men a chance We'll give them a chance, even a second chance. We're going to see later in these verses, there are no second chances once you get to a certain point. But to worship God is to do right, and it's to make no apology for it. No pleas, no deals, to the end. Two blessings, two commands. The second command is in verse 10. It's a specific command given to John, but it's also given to us. Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Don't close up this book. Don't seal up this book. Don't neglect it. Don't ignore it, for the time is at hand. And when it comes, it will come suddenly. So two simple commands that the church has been so disobedient to, but doesn't even have eyes to see. They failed to worship God. They've worshipped man. Pragmatism is their God. And they've sealed up the sayings of this book. And we haven't taken it seriously. Maybe we need to take these simple commands seriously. Worship God and don't seal up this book. Two blessings, two commands, and then there's one very important truth repeated word for word twice in this exhortation. When the Bible says something once, it means business. When the Bible says something twice, it really means business. The Bible says twice in the book of Psalms, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Not once, but twice in two different Psalms. Psalm 14 In Psalm 53. Am I right on that? 53. Here in the same exhortation we have the same words repeated twice. Behold, I come quickly. That's Jesus speaking. Those are red letters. Doesn't mean necessarily soon. The Bible teaches in the New Testament 
And the earliest apostles and church fathers taught that we needed to be ready at any moment for our Lord to come for His church. The imminency of Christ's return. Even Paul thought it could be in his own lifetime. He spoke to the Thessalonians about the Lord descending from heaven. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the, cloud, in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Meet him in the air. Behold, I come quickly. Jesus also says this, not only in this chapter, but in chapter 3, verse 11. And he says it to only one of the seven churches. He says it to the one who was faithful one of two that had no condemnation from our Lord, the one who had kept the word of His patience. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. That was a truth declared to the church at Philadelphia, the faithful remnant who kept God's word. And if we're faithful to keep God's word, we need to hear that ourselves. And we hear it twice here. Behold, I come quickly. Not necessarily soon, but suddenly. That's a consistent mark of God's salvation and His judgment. When His judgment comes, it's quickly. Just like it was when the heavens opened up and the floodwaters began to rise and the rain began to pour. Everything Noah, a preacher of righteousness, had warned about for 120 years, it didn't come soon when he stopped preaching it, but when it came, it came quickly. And it was too late. The door was shut. Also with God's salvation. When God's salvation comes, it comes quickly. Christ Jesus hung on a cross and cried, Tetelestai, it is finished! And gave up the ghost. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And his blood was accepted in heaven as a sacrifice for our sins. And the proof that God accepted it was his resurrection and the Holy Spirit's coming. Fifty days later, just like it had been prophesied, it happened quickly. When a man is saved, when a man repents and trusts Christ, maybe after many years of rebellion, salvation comes quickly, suddenly. In an instant, just like that thief on the cross, the vilest of offenders can be made free. That's the mark of God's salvation and His judgment. So when it's said twice here in this chapter, Behold, I come quickly. Here in the last exhortation of the Bible, everything that's been written here is being affirmed once again. Because when God does, He does suddenly. And He does quickly. That's why we should always be ready. Always be watching. Sober, vigilant. We have an interesting interaction here in this last exhortation uh, in verses 8 through 10. I, John, saw these things. John's affirming that I saw these things with my own eyes and I heard them with my own ears. I am an eyewitness to all of these things. Elderly John on the Isle of Patmos. No reason to lie. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. So who is this angel? that John falls down before in a posture of worship. Well, if we go back to chapter 21, verse 9, we're told, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. So remember, one of the seven angels that poured out one of the seven vials or bowls of God's wrath 
Remember the seven seal judgments. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is the seven vials. This was one of those angels that came to John. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. And showed him a detailed blueprint of the future home of the believer. The new Jerusalem that would transcend the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. It's one of those angels that John falls down before. If you turn back to 17 verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying unto thee, Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. One of these angels not only showed John detailed blueprint of the new Jerusalem, he also showed him the judgment of the great whore. The great whore, the spirit of American churchianity, the spirit of Catholicism, the spirit of ecumenism, the spirit of Antichrist, the, the whore, the religious whore that helps usher Antichrist into power. John, showed, John has shown these things by one of these angels that held the seven vials. And then if we go back to 15 verse 1... And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. This angel that John falls down before is one of these seven that held the last plagues of God, and at the command of the Lamb, they were poured out on the earth. That's who this angel is, but look at what he says. We see who he is in other places in Revelation, but look what he says in verse 9. Then he saith unto me, or then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of the book. Worship God. So this angel identifies himself. He's identified as one of the seven angels with the seven bowls of God's wrath that come out of the temple and begin to pour out God's wrath in chapter 15. But he describes himself as a fellow servant to John and a brother to the prophets. So what we have here, remember what Jesus answered the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22? Remember they were trying to trap him? What if there was this woman who had a husband and her husband died? And so the husband's brother came to uh, raise up seed, but then he died, and then all these brethren died, and then she died. Well, whose husband is going to... Who's going to be her husband in the resurrection? Jesus. Trying to trap him. Remember that? That's what wicked people do. Wicked religious people. They try to trap God's preachers. Jesus gives us a good example of how to respond to such things. But in Matthew 22... 29 and 30, Jesus responds this way. And I, there's some truth here that sheds light on what is being said here to John. Matthew 22, 29 and 30. Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. You do err, not knowing the Scriptures. That's a powerful statement. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. They're as the angels of God in heaven. So this angel who tells John, I'm your fellow servant and a brother of the prophets, was once a man whom the resurrection has made as the angel of God in heaven. Who is he? I don't know. The Scriptures don't say. I think there's a good guess we can make. I believe as good as guess as any, 
Is this man sitting here talking to John is the same one that saw the things John saw, the prophet Daniel? It's the prophet Daniel. I wouldn't die on this hill, but it is interesting. The book of Daniel is the Old Testament book that reveals the same things that John reveals. What Daniel is shown is for the nation of Israel. What John is shown is for the churches. But it's the same things. In chapter 22, verse 10, this angel who is a, of revelation, a fellow servant and a brother of the prophet, says to John, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. So this angel, who was once a man, but is now glorified in the resurrection as one of the angels of God, according to the, his own words out of his mouth, tells John not to do for the churches at the end of the apostolic age, what he was told to do with Israel until the time of the end. There's a couple of interesting verses in Daniel that would make me think that that's who this individual angel is. I mean, it's just interesting. I wouldn't die on that hill. We're not told that. But maybe we are. In the book of Daniel chapter 12, verse 9 Daniel is told, and he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So Daniel's told to seal these things. They wouldn't be understood till the time of the end. There's a lot of history that had to take place before we could look back and actually see history fulfilled. And this angel tells John, don't seal. So what Daniel was told to do with regard to Israel until the time of the end, John is told not to do in the apostolic age concerning the time of the end. So there's a connection there. But then in 13, verse 13, Daniel, these are the words he's told, and we don't hear anything else about Daniel in his life. But go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. So in other words, Daniel's told, go your way. I'm, your job is done. Go your way until the time of the end. And at the end... You have a lot. Rest. At the end, you have a lot and you have a purpose. I'll have a job for you to do. Daniel was told he'd have a duty at the time of the end. I just find that interesting. I believe a good, as good a guess as any, right here in chapter 22, verse 8 through 10, is this angel is the prophet Daniel. So what? Why would I even take time to share that unless we could apply it? I think there's two applications here that we can make. Number one, and the psalmist confirms this in Psalm 58, God's servants, His faithful servants, don't just get to behold His wrath upon the wicked. They will have an active part in it. That's a glorious thing. Psalm 58 says the day is coming when the righteous will wash their feet in the blood of the wicked. So that a man may say there is a God that judges in the earth. The saints of God who will be like the angels of God in heaven in the resurrection will come with the Messiah to make right all the wrong. They'll have an active part in it. Jude quoted Enoch. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment. 
That's cause for rejoicing. The second application we see here is a true servant of God. A well-known prophet refuses any worship. He stops it dead in its tracks. This angel here who was once a man, as the angels of God in heaven, who has a duty here at the last days, who I believe is the prophet Daniel, refused any worship. He stopped it, he stopped it dead in its tracks. You see, this angel here, once a man, is quite unlike Donald Trump. Quite unlike TV preachers. Quite unlike those that want the clickbait. He stops worship for him dead in its tracks. He doesn't bask in it like we can so easily do. That's the lesson for us. We shouldn't labor to be famous. We should labor to make Jesus famous. What's being done to us in Montana has nothing to do with us. It doesn't matter how many people know about it or what news story covers. It doesn't even matter who we are. That's what's so stupid about the whole thing is we're nobodies. All we were doing was walking to make Jesus famous. And that's the way it ought to be for God's servants. Let's make Jesus famous. John the Baptist, who predicated these things and that happened at, uh, with the birth of Christ and who pre- preached and predicated the ministry of Christ, he shows us exactly what this is to be. This is what it looks like to worship God. He must increase, John 3, verse 30. I must decrease. Worship God. He must increase. We must decrease. If we truly possess that, it'll be hard to be afraid. It'd be hard to fear. We'd have to work extra hard to be afraid, even in the face of the worst vile tyranny. Making Jesus famous. Worship God. Daniel says. This reminds me of Revelation 4.11. You may not remember this, but I honestly believe, and I taught this. I taught that Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 is the most important verse in the Bible. One man's opinion. Okay, it's okay. One man's opinion. I believe it's the most important verse in the Bible. I think Revelation 5 is the most important chapter in the Bible. Just one guy's opinion. But Revelation 4.11, I'm reminded of that when I see Daniel say to John, worship God. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. My friends, that's the crux of it all. That's the crux of it all from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. The chapter we're in now. The last chapter of the Bible. All the way to verse 21. The last blessing. The last amen of the Bible. That's the crux. God the Creator. The Sovereign Lord. The King of nations. The King of all creation is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. For He, not men, has created all things, and He created them for His pleasure. Everything, whether we understand it or not. 
It's not about the salvation of man. That's a big part of God's glory. But it's about the worship and glory of God. Worship God. Verse 10. Seal not. John is told to seal not. Don't seal up this book. Don't finish it, sign it, close it and stick it on a shelf. The time is at hand. And if it was at hand around 100 A.D. at the close of the apostolic age in the time of the Roman Emperor Domitian, how much more so is it at hand today? Seal not. And yet, that is exactly what the church has done from its earliest days even today. In Revelation 2 and 3, we have very specific letters and exhortations and commendations and condemnations and warnings given specifically by Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, to the churches. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And yet we seal it up. Those words in those red letters are more directly given to us than the Sermon on the Mount preached to a Jewish audience. And yet we give it no mind. So many Christians like to camp out in the Sermon on the Mount. Camp out. They never leave. They never strike the tent. And they sure don't have any clue about what Jesus says to the churches that we're not to seal up right here in Revelation. It's a shameful thing. It's a shameful thing to see God's people do exactly what they're told not to do in such simple language. And we're all guilty. I'm guilty. God forgive us. The time is at hand. Here Jesus... Here it is said exactly what Jesus said the first time He opened His mouth and preached His very first message in the Gospel. Jesus says in Mark chapter 115, this is one of my favorite mileposts in Mark, very simple statement that reveals much about Jesus and shows Him to be quite different than measly, simpy little Jesus, the idol that is in the minds of most professing Christians. Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It's saying the exact same things here at the end that Jesus said when He first opened His mouth and began His public ministry. The time is at hand. Take it seriously. Verse 11. Verse 11 is an interesting verse. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He, that is fil- he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. What is this saying? It's, what it's saying is very clear. No second chances. There's coming a time, the time we're warned about, the time that is at hand, when it comes, no more second chances. He that is righteous will be righteous. He that is filthy will be filthy. He that is unjust will be unjust. He that is holy and set aside by God will be holy still. There comes a time when the opportunity 
is gone. No second chances. Just like for those people when the door of the ark was closed. Almighty God, we see here in this verse. We see here in this verse what is not being done with the wicked here. No pleas. No deals. No pleas, no deals to the end. Out there in Madison County, Montana, with God, no pleas, no deals at the end. Almighty God is not a beggar. That's what this verse is telling us. He's not a beggar. He's a gracious and merciful king. A long-suffering and gentle God. Who is patient, but He will not at all acquit the wicked. He is not a beggar. Working backwards in Psalms, when I read this verse, verse 11 in chapter 22, I'm reminded of some very blunt truths spoken in the Psalms. I'll start in chapter, uh, Psalm 95, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all the gods. He's not a beggar. Psalm 47, verse 2. For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. Not a beggar. In Psalm 22, right there in that prophetic psalm that prophesies the sacrificial death of the Messiah who's poured out like wax for the sins of the world. It says in verse 28, For the kingdom is the Lord's and He is the governor among the nations. He's not a beggar. That's a serious truth. That's a sobering truth. And while he waits, there is opportunity. I've said this many times. We walked 5,542 miles across America before we ran into that fool in Madison County, Montana. No trouble, no incidents. But we did warn a lot of people that there may not be any hope for America. But there is hope for an American as long as there's breath in his lungs. For Almighty God who judges nations, a furious storm is also the refuge from the storm. And that's why he sent his son Jesus Christ to die and shed his blood and raise up from the dead the third day. That you might be spared the doom that is guaranteed this nation and all Gentile nations. It's true. But there comes a point when there's no more second chances. If you're unrighteous, you're going to be unrighteous for all eternity. If you're filthy, you're going to be filthy from all eternity. Or for all eternity. If you're unjust, you're going to be unjust for all eternity. But if your righteousness is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, imputed to you by virtue of repentance and faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ the Messiah, then you will be righteous in the eyes of God for all eternity. If you've been set aside by God, justified in the blood of Christ, sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, and holy in the eyes of God, you will be holy for all eternity. God is not a beggar. He's a king that does exactly what He says He's going to do. Verses 12 and 13 are red letters. We think of the red letters. You know, that's something that man put in there. I'm not trying to say it was ordained. We can know when Jesus is speaking. We don't need red letters to know that when we read the Scriptures, but they are helpful. These ought to be red letters. I don't know if they are in red letter Bibles or not, but they are. It's Jesus speaking. He says again, 
What he says in verse 7, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Behold, I come quickly. That doesn't mean soon necessarily. It's been, if we believe man-made history, I mean, the only history we can confirm by the Word of God goes back to creation, what I believe is about 4,000 years before Christ, up until about 100 A.D. After that, we can't know anything for certain. Wicked, vile people in places of power who write down books and who disseminate their philosophies and their lies all over the world have been doing it for all for centuries. I mean, we say 2,000 years ago, but can we really know for sure? There's a lot of things we think we know that we really can't. We can know this book. But it's been a long time. We can say that for sure. It's been a long time. So Jesus wasn't saying soon. He was saying sudden. When I come, it's sudden. Like the lightning that flashes from the east to the west. Like the thief that breaks in suddenly. Behold, I come quickly. Says it again. We ought to take it seriously. That's why we ought to live every day as if He could come today. Just like Paul and John, the apostles and the early church fathers did. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. There is no respect of persons with the Messiah. There's no bribes, no special favors. It's exactly what is said of God. What Jesus says of Himself here is exactly what is said of God in the Old Testament. Exactly. Isaiah 40. I don't mean to run long. Isaiah 40 verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work is before Him. And in 62.11 says this of the God of Israel, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. His reward is with Him. That reward is twofold. Judgment upon the wicked, no respect of persons, and salvation for the righteous, no respect of persons. No bribes, no special favors. Your money won't help you. Treasures of of wickedness, the Bible says in Proverbs, profit nothing in the day of wrath. Go read Psalm 49. I won't read it today. Meditate upon it. I call Psalm 49 payday preaching for evil times. And guess what? When the judgment comes, it falls on both the rich and the poor. For the rich and the poor are both brutish, wicked, vile sinners. So it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. If you reject God, judgment's coming for you. And the payday judgment won't have any respect of persons. You see, the rich and the poor both go into the caves and the dens of the rocks. Because at the end of the day, your money, your houses, and your lands can't help you. You've got to flee from the wrath of the Lamb to the same place the poorest of men have to flee. You're no different. Read Psalm 49 sometime. Good payday preaching for evil times. Verse 13 of this last exhortation, bear with me. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I am Alpha and Omega, the the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. 
If we were talking Hebrew, I am Aleph and Tav. I am A and I am Z. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. The one who speaks here is the same one. The the one who speaks here at the end of this book is the same one who at the very beginning said, let there be light. And there was light. It's the same one. We see this phrase several times in Revelation. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In chapter 1, verse 8, is the Almighty that is speaking. The Almighty. In chapter 1, verse 11, it's Jesus Christ who says that about Himself. Jesus Christ who John saw standing amidst the seven golden candlesticks. In chapter 21, verse 6, He that sat upon the throne... At the end of it all, the new heavens and the new earth, God all in all. Remember we talked about the great abdication where after Jesus Christ, the Son, the Messiah, puts all His enemies under His feet, then He'll submit Himself to the Father that God may be all in all. Eternity future. He, the Almighty, God all in all, says I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then here, Jesus Himself. Jesus What what is this telling us very clearly? What the world hates. What all false religion is set out to destroy. A truth that even the demons know and can't help but speak. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus Christ who walks amongst the seven golden candlesticks and holds the seven stars in His right hand. Jesus Christ who writes to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Jesus Christ, who was born in a manger, who preached and walked the dusty roads of Galilee, who died on a cross, who was buried and rose from the grave. He is God. He's God. It's funny, these same things about coming and bringing my reward and being the beginning and the end that we see here in Revelation are also in Isaiah. It's all there in Isaiah too. And Isaiah says two very interesting things that I don't know what a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness would do with these verses. They'd probably do what a lot of churches do with Revelation, just avoid it. Isaiah 44.6 is a very important passage. If you ever get to talk to a, a Mormon or someone who claims to believe the Bible but would deny the deity of Christ. Take him to Isaiah 44, 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. That's exactly what Jesus says of Himself in Revelation. So if you're going to deny that Jesus is God and say you believe the Bible, you're going to have to throw the book of Revelation out. Maybe most Mormons would. I don't know. But... God says, beside me there is no God. So if Jesus is not God, when He says, I am the first and the last, He's a liar. But He's not a liar. He rose from the dead. Isaiah 43, 11 is even better. Back one chapter. This is a good one. I, even I, am the Lord. This is Almighty God. Jehovah God. The God of Israel. Elohim. The God of creation. I, even I, am the Lord. And beside me... There is no Savior. Not only beside God is there no God, but beside Almighty God the Creator, there is no Savior. 
So if Jesus is the Savior, like a lot of Mormon folk and a lot of false religions would claim, and He's not God, then He's a liar. And God's a liar. If Jesus is the Savior, then He's God according to the Word of God. And that's exactly what is affirmed here. The one affirming it here in the last chapter of the Bible, it is abundantly clear, is not Mormon Jesus. It's not Mormon Jesus. It's not J.W. Jesus. And it sure isn't Catholic Jesus strung up naked on a cross, weak and downtrodden. It's the risen Christ. The risen Christ described in great detail in this book. I want to look at verses 14 and 15 next time. Uh, They're important. it's, It's the last clue. We're given several clues in the revelation concerning the new Jerusalem. And several clues show us that this new Jerusalem will actually come down in the millennium. And then it will transcend into the new heavens and the new earth. And this is another clue here. We've looked at several of those. Um, Only certain people will have access to that new Jerusalem. Outside of that city will be some evil things that won't exist during the new heavens and the new earth. But they will in the millennial kingdom. And Christ will rule over that with an iron hand. And Satan will make one last effort when he's let go to try to gather the nations against the Lord and His Christ and it'll fail. There won't even be a fight. But there's a, there's a textual variant here in verse 14 that some of the modern Bibles follow and it's very bad. It's very bad because it creates an image that is the diametric opposite of the image that is created in terms of the righteousness of the saints throughout the New Testament. So I don't really want to get into that today. Uh, Verses 14 and 15 will close out the Bible's last exhortation. And then we'll get into the Bible's last invitation. So there's not a last exhortation without a last invitation. Praise God that Though there are those barred access from the eternal blessings of God, the one who bars access also grants access. It says in Ephesians 2.18, For through Him, that is the Jesus speaking here in this last chapter of the Bible, we have access by the Spirit unto the Father. As Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. We can come to the Father by Him. That's good news. That's good news. Even from the last chapter of the Bible, the last exhortation. And these simple truths ought to compel us to live as did the Maccabees without fear and willing to die for the things we preach and believe. So I hope that was a blessing for you today. Let me close in prayer and I'll pray over the food and hopefully we can enjoy some fellowship. Father God, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for its first chapter and its last chapter and everything sandwiched in between, Lord. And it's a privilege to look at this last chapter of the Bible, this last exhortation, and to see such simple truth, not convoluted and dark secrets like the philosophers and the religious teachers and the devils of this world delve in. Nothing mysterious at all. Worship God. Don't close up this book, but take it seriously. Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Such simple truths that we rejoice in, O Lord. 
We rejoice that the day is coming when you will make all things right. You will right all wrong. And the righteous will be a part of that and will rejoice in the judgment and rejoice in the salvation. Just like that innumerable number there in Revelation chapter 5. The Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, kindred, and nation. Great truths, Lord. Thank you that we could meditate upon them today. Give us strength and courage like those great men of faith who waxed valiant and fight and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And Lord, when we get tired and faint, may we do what the writer of Hebrews says there. Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us and let us look, run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the same Jesus who speaks to us in this last chapter of the Bible, the author and finisher of our faith. And then we're told to consider Him who, who endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest we be weary and faint in our own minds. Lord, we have not yet resisted unto blood, and we thank You for that. And may those that did, particularly the author and finisher of our faith, Give us strength not to faint in the face of evil. Bless the food we're about to eat in our fellowship. Thank you that we can enjoy it today and have the freedom to do so. That is a great blessing from God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.